I have to admit, as I look out in the audience this morning, touch with a little bit of emotion because there are many of you here that, well, it's just dear to me here. As uh, George mentioned, the announcements when they came in, couldn't get away. And I, I am not short for words and talking and being friendly, but as I look out in the audience this morning, there are so many of you here. I, I could spend the morning, in fact, one of my things in my introduction is talking about how precious memories are. And what I want to talk about this morning are things that ought to be precious to us. And as I mentioned, I could stand here all morning and just go around the room because I know most of you, maybe not all, the congregation has changed some. But I tell you, as I see the young men this morning that were participating and leading in the services, it makes me so proud because I knew them when they were younger. And the growth that has gone on here and the steadfastness here, and you're to be committed for that, and I'm grateful for that. But the congregation here is dear to me. And memories are precious, and they get us through hard times. Some other things that we might think about that we, if I ask you what was precious, you might think about a wedding or an engagement ring. You know, a young woman gets an engagement ring. That might be precious to her ring or something, a piece of jewelry that was handed down through the years. Or how about friends, as I've just mentioned, our brethren, people that are precious to us, that we're honored and privileged to call them our friends. And certainly, anybody that knows me or is around me for any length of time, I love children. And I love little children. And I'll tell you, I have, I'll just, I have a granddaughter that I haven't physically been able to hold that is overseas. But I'm so grateful for Skype. Thank goodness for the 20th century and technology, because, or 21st century, because I can at least Skype with her and see her. But she's precious to me. Donnie and Joan got to meet uh, their grandchildren here when Donnie was with us in the meeting a few weeks back. They're precious. But I want us to consider some things this morning that are precious in the Bible. And I'm just going to have several passages, in. I, and I can tell you this is not all-inclusive, because we could be here all week long if we're talking about things that are precious, that are contained in God's Word. But I want to begin first with the Word of the Lord. If you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, I'll mention, Nathan asked me if I had a PowerPoint, and I told him, I said, no, I'm still old school. I'd probably mess around more time trying to get the slides to change than I would focusing on what I'm trying to say. So maybe next time I'll have one, but I don't have a PowerPoint. But in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, we read there, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Is the word of the Lord precious to you? It was precious in the olden days because we're told here in the book of Samuel that there were no, more, there were no open visions. The Lord was not going to be speaking as often as he did with the children and with Israel before and with the prophets. And because of that, his word would be precious. Amos 8.11, the old country prophet there, he prophesied about a famine. Verse 11, we read, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I'll send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. The, here, the, the prophecy here was about a famine that was to come. It wasn't going to be about water and drink. It was going to be about a famine with the word of the God. You know, we hear news. 
We hear sports. We hear entertainment. How often do we hear the word of the Lord? How would God characterize our society today? How would He characterize us? Would He say we have a famine of the word? Many of us, I'm sure, have many copies of the Lord's Word, many copies of the Bible at our home. And probably many of our friends out there have copies of the Lord's Bible. But I tell you, too often I think we take the Word for granted. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved of God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. How much time do you spend each day in God's word? How much time did you spend in God's word this week? How much time have you spent in God's word over the last year? Is there a famine? Lord tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 13, through young Timothy there, he says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to our exhortation, to doctrine. Yes, God expects us to read his word. How would God react if we told him, well, I intend to read your word and I intend to do more Bible reading in the next year. You ever make that commitment and fail to keep it? How would God react to that? Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. Read, hear, keep what you read. Keep the precious word. Second Peter 1, 20 through 21, we read there. The apostle Peter writes, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This word that we have here, it's not from men. Peter tells us it was from the Holy Ghost. They were moved by the Holy Ghost. Where did the Holy Ghost get His word? His word came from Jesus. Where did Jesus get His words? John tells us His words came from the Heavenly Father. This is the mind revealed. The Father's mind revealed to us in His word. God directed these men. This word is from God. It's not from men. Is it precious to us? Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, we read there, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in the times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he hath made the world. Again, this is God's word. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, I'm sure we're all familiar with that verse. It tells us there all Scripture, all is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's God's mind. And of course, James 1, 21 tells us the word is able to save us. Is this word precious to you? Another thing that I think ought to be precious to us that we find in the Bible is Christ and his blood. Is Christ and his blood precious to you? 1 Peter 2, 
verses 4 through 8, we read, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, and precious, there's our word, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Jesus was precious to his father. He was chosen by his father. Jesus is precious to his believers. But to those that don't believe on Jesus, he's a stumbling block. He's an offense. And why is he precious? Think about our Lord and Savior. Matthew 8, 20, we read there, And Jesus said unto them, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Over in John, we can also read where he was not respected or even accepted in his own hometown of Nazareth. When we think about our Savior here, he wasn't living in a palace. He says here he has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have servants waiting on him hand and foot. What makes him precious is our Savior was humble. And all that he came to do here was to do for our benefit and for our own good and to do the will of his Father. 1 Peter 1, 22, uh, 1 Peter 1, chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. For even unto, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to our sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. We just observed the Lord's Supper. Did you stop and consider what our Savior has done for us? This passage tells us he's left a pattern for us, a pattern to follow, but it also tells us that we were healed by his stripes. He bore our stripes. Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Again, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by doing the things which he suffered and being made perfect, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus is precious because he suffered. He exemplified what suffering means. Ephesians 5.23 tells us Jesus is the head of the body. He's our Savior. He's the head of the church. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Is Christ precious? We talk about his blood. We thought about the sacrifice this morning. Through Jesus and his blood, we have remission of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, there we read, For as much, for as, much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, 
received by tradition from, the, from your fathers. But what are we um, redeemed with? Verse 19, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Think about what the world would be like without Christ. You ever wonder why there's so much evil around us? You know, last, just a few days ago, we had the shooter, I guess it was yesterday, we had the shooting in Texas. I got up this morning. Mom came through the kitchen having her coffee, and she asked me if I'd heard, I think it was in Ohio, more shootings. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much wickedness? Why is there so much immorality in this world? I'll tell you why. It's real simple. Jesus is not precious to the world. People follow anything. They'll follow any kind of belief. They'll follow everything. But you know what? They won't follow Jesus. Hebrews 5, 14 through 15, it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death, for the remission, redemption of the transgression that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. Matthew 26 Verses 20 through 26 through 28, we read there. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for, me, for the remission of sins. Yes, Christ's blood and Christ should be precious to us. Something else that I think ought to be precious to us is unity. Just like God's word in olden times was scarce, I'm afraid to say unity is also scarce today. You look around the religious world today, why are there so many different beliefs? Where I live in Athens, I can't count on two hands how many different religious bodies I pass on the way to services on Sunday and on Wednesday. How many different religious bodies or beliefs did you pass this morning on your way in? Why is that? Take any entity. It can be work. It can be your family. It can be politics. Our country is divided. We've heard that. Why? There's so much confusion. And as I said, sad to say, it's because there's, and it's, as a result, we also have confusion. And sad to say in the Lord's church that we're impacted and influenced by that. We don't have the unity that we ought to have. Psalm 133, 1 said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. 
And it's certainly pleasant if we can realize it and maintain it and preserve it as the Lord would have us to do. The Lord prayed for unity in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. We read there, Neither pray I, these, pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. See, Jesus was not only praying for his disciples, but he was praying for those that would believe his disciples. Those that would hear and believe. And in 21, he says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. Jesus prayed for unity, the unity that the Father and the Son had. He prayed for the believers to have that same kind of unity. That we all be one. Jesus expects unity for his believers. We are living in a world that is literally, literally divided religiously. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. A lot of times when we talk about 1 Corinthians, this was a problem in the early church. And we always say, go to 1 Corinthians 1 there where it says, let there be no divisions, and certainly God condemns division. But I want to look at these verses for a minute and look at something else there. It says, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you, sp- that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that they are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? As I mentioned many times when I look at this verse, the first thing I want to run to is say, well, there it is. The Lord condemns division. And rightly so, it does. But this verse is, these verses right here are much richer than that. Paul here is pointing out things that the establishes the principles that result in unity. Look at this. He's telling them, let there be no division. But then he says, speak the same thing. What does that mean? Have the same message. Let there be no divisions. Be perfectly joined, completely joined together in the same mind, the same judgment, the same conclusion in spiritual matters. Paul further details how to establish unity in Ephesians chapter 4. We're familiar with that. The first six verses there, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with, all long, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul here is saying, get your mind right. Get your mind right. You walk worthy of your calling. That means get our hearts right, get our minds right. And then you endeavor. That means it's going to take some effort on our part. We're to strive, we're to work toward unity. You work toward that spirit and the bond of peace. Are you working toward that? Is unity precious to you? 
again, I ask the question, you know, sometimes we say it's, it's just hard to get along, but the thing about it is the Lord wouldn't have asked us to do it or commanded us to do it if it couldn't be done. We're not talking about compromise here, but we're talking about being in unity in spiritual matters. Same mind, same judgment, same conclusion. Another item that I think ought to be precious to us, the trials of our faith. 1 Peter 1.7, we read there that the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. If you remember the book of Peter, Peter's writing to Christians that are suffering. They were being persecuted. And he tells them here, your suffering and your trials, it's more precious than gold and silver. And when they overcome, he's telling them, God will give them praise and honor. Think about our trials. How do we approach them? How do we think about them? When God sees how we deal with the things that afflict us, the difficulties that we have here upon this earth day after day after day, would God be pleased? Would it bring honor and glory? Or do we murmur and complain, get angry? We say, why me? Why me, Lord? In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says there, My brethren, count it a joy when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know what? Our trials give us an opportunity really to step back and reflect on how we react to what's going on to our, with our circumstances. It's an opportunity for us to grow and for us to mature spiritually. When we compare our trials to those of the apostles and the prophets of old and to our Lord and Savior, our life is pretty fine what we suffer with. It's pretty fine when we compare to what they went through. Again, how would God, would he give us praise and honor for how we're handling our trials? James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. The Lord may try us. Scriptures reveal that. Remember Abraham? Lord tried Abraham. He and Sarah waited all those years for a child, and he wanted to be tried him. You remember he got the knife raised and was ready to take Isaac's life, and the Lord stayed his hand? That was a trial. And when we become Christians, trials don't end. Remember our Lord wasn't long after he was baptized. Who we find with him out in the desert? Satan. 
the Lord will try us, and we may be tried. I've often thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice when you obey the gospel that you're gone just like that? That it's over? And the reason I say that is we don't have an opportunity to sin. We don't have the opportunity to do things that displease our Lord. But that's not what he wants. He wants a people that have been tried, those who love him, those who will be faithful to him. He wants those as Abraham who have been proved. And so again, it gives us an opportunity to grow and mature so that when circumstances and difficulties come along, you know what? We can face them and we can overcome them. And we can still maintain true to our Heavenly Father rather than bringing disgrace to his name. Are your trials precious? How do you view them? James said, count them a joy. How about the promises of God? You know, a pledge is to do something or not to do something. To reward something or not to reward something. 2 Peter 1, we read there, verses 3 and 4, it says, According to his divine power, he hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through, the, through lust. What makes these exceeding? What makes these great? What makes these precious promises? It's the source. Peter tells us here they come from God. He's our source. In Titus 1-2, we're told there, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. We have a hope here that we've been promised from a God that cannot lie. That was reinforced over in Hebrews 6.18 there when the Hebrew writer said that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. An Old Testament passage in 1 Kings 8, verse 56, it said, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all, according to all that he had promised. There hath not failed one word. Do you hear that? There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. What makes them precious? They come from God. And when I read these passages here, this tells me God's promises are true. And God has the ability to give those promises and to fulfill them. He's always proved to be faithful. However, on the other hand, the Hebrew writer also warns, look at Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3 there, it says, Therefore we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That's a warning. It's not a warning because God's not going to do his part. It's a warning to those that are hearers. It's a warning to the believers there. Don't let these things slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense reward, how shall we escape if we neglect 
so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. I'll tell you what I take away from this, and we need to take away from this. In the day of judgment, when the end comes, and we're standing before God Almighty, and we fail to enter into heaven, there is no one to blame but self. Not going to be able to blame God. Not going to be able to blame our friends. Not going to be able to blame family, mom, dad. It's self. That's what this tells me here. No one to blame but self. God has done everything, given us every opportunity. He's done his part. We have to do our part. Do what he says. Keep his word and be faithful. And he'll keep his promise. You know, you think about some of the general examples. Go all the way back into Genesis. Remember in Genesis 3.15, we read there. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead by the Lord, he dealt that death blow to Satan. Genesis 12, 2, 2, 3 there. Promises to Abraham, and I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee, all families of the earth shall be blessed. It was a land blessing. The Lord fulfilled that. All nations were blessed through Abraham. That's been fulfilled. He said he'd make him a great name. We're still talking about him today. In Genesis 9, remember there what the Lord put in the sky? The flood? If you look at verse 16... Or in Genesis 9, it says, he put a rainbow in the sky. It was a covenant. He would never destroy the world again with a flood like he did in that time. And again, we see rainbows today, don't we, after it's rained? Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And again, over in Hebrews, the writer writes there in the Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us entering into the rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. There remaineth a rest for God's people. It's a blessing. It should be precious to us. Also the fact, Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Lord's promise salvation if we believe and obey. That's a precious promise. To his children, Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We have spiritual blessings. 1 Peter 3, 12, the passage should be familiar to us. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. 
Our Lord sees and hears his children. That's what he's telling us. And then also he's promised to come again and to take us home with him. Look at John 14, 1 through 3. John writing there, the Lord speaking through John, and the writing here, he's given comfort and encouragement to his disciples. His disciples didn't understand why they couldn't go where he was going. It wasn't time yet. And so the Lord speaks to them as he tells us today. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, ye may, ye, there ye may also be also. And then I think of the aged Timothy, writing to the young Paul. And I'll tell you, sometimes just read and think about the Apostle Paul, what he went through, what he suffered. Never complained. Never complained. And yet notice what he writes to young Timothy here to try to help encourage him and prepare him for what was ahead. But he tells him there, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The Lord's promised a crown of righteousness to those that look forward today to him, to his coming, and to those that are righteous. But I tell you, the Lord's also made a promise to the sinner. Remember the definition of promise. Pledge to do something or pledge not to do something. To reward something or not to reward. And in 2 Thessalonians, we're told there, the Apostle Paul writes, verses 7 through 9, And unto you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his, of his power. The Lord has promised to reward the faithful with eternal life, but he's also promised to punish the disobedient eternally. And last point this morning. Death. Death precious to you? Psalmist writes in 116, verse 15, <clears throat> Precious is the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I guess as I get older, I can remember many times I would call home and I'd ask my mom and dad where they'd been, what they'd been doing for the day. And as they got older, they spent most of their days going to hospitals or going to funerals. Of course, I was younger, and at that time, when you're younger, you don't think about death. But as I get older now, and as time has gone on, and as with many of you, at one time or another, we're going to experience the loss 
of a loved one, one that's dear to us. When you're sitting there at a bedside with a loved one and you're watching them just deteriorate and their quality of life is not what you consider a quality of life, in your heart and in your mind, you have to think and you have to pray knowing what the Bible teaches us, how precious, how good it would be for them just to be relieved and go on. And when they do pass away, we breathe, and they breathe their last breath, we do breathe a sigh of relief, don't we? Knowing that they're not suffering, they're not in pain. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In Philippians 1.1, Paul wrote there, he said, Paul, Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, I say that because the saints are going to face death. We're all going to face death. And there's two types of death. There's the physical death. There's a separation of the body from the spirit. We read in James 2.26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, even so Christ shall, die, shall all be made alive. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And in Hebrews 9, 27, as it appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That's the physical death. But there's another death we need to be aware of and need to think about. Behind this physical shell, we have a soul that's going to live on in eternity. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Talking about a spiritual death, a separation from our Lord. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the book of Revelation, writing there to Christians, now you want to talk about suffering, read Revelation sometime. There were people physically were being killed, persecuted. It was terrible. In Revelation 20, it reads there, verses 12 through 14, it says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into a lake of fire. This is the second death. The warning here in Revelation was, we're judged according to our works. We're going to be judged according to everything. Everything that's been done in this body here upon this earth, we're going to be judged. And if we've not lived the kind of life that we ought to live, a life that's pleasing and in harmony with the Lord's will, we're going to be lost. We're going to spend eternity in hell. Hell is real. It's not going to end when you die. It's only the beginning. And so, is death precious to you? 
Brother Gary Sandusky, I heard him say one time he started a lesson out and he said, do you smell it? Do you feel it? Do you breathe it? I didn't understand what he was talking about. And he says, I don't know whether you realize this or not. Every one of us right now, we are standing at the edge of eternity. Think about that. Every one of us. So do you consider death precious? And I'm reminded of what we read here in Romans 14, 13. And I heard the voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. As his children, that ought to be comforting to us. Blessed are those that die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. There's that rest again. But to die in the Lord, you have to be in the Lord. Galatians 3, 26 through 27 says, For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Are you in the Lord? Have you obeyed the gospel? Is the word Lord precious to you? Is unity precious to you? Is the blood of Christ precious to you? Is Jesus precious to you? Are your trials of faith precious? Are the promises of God precious? And death and afterward, is that precious? We're going to stand here in just a moment and sing a song. Self-included here, all of us need to evaluate our life. We have an opportunity this morning to be in the Lord if you're not in the Lord. As I read just there, read in Galatians there. You can come, you can name Christ, confess Christ being the Savior, the Son of God. And you can be baptized, you can come in contact with his blood through baptism and have the remission of your sins. And you can go from here this morning being in a covenant relationship with our Lord. Being prepared to face whatever's out there. On the other hand, do you have correction that needs to be made in your life? Are you an airy child? Are you one that has fallen away? Maybe forgot some of the things that ought to be precious to us. If you're subject in any way, I'll ask that you come as we stand and sing.